want to begin by taking you back to January 1929. The Rose Bowl, Pasadena, California. University of California facing the unbeaten Georgia Tech team. I don't know how the Southeastern Conference got in the Rose Bowl. I mean, it later became the Big Ten and the Pacific Coast Conference. But, but anyway, this uh, Cal team was a good team as well. They weren't undefeated. And they had a star player by the name of Roy Regals who played both ways. He played defense, uh, defense of what would be equivalent to our linebacker. I think I had a different name for it then. And he was a center on offense. He was an All-American. Very, very good football player. In the first half, a curious thing happened. A Georgia Tech running back fumbled a football. Roy Regals picked it up. And uh, he started the right way, but collided with some Tech players. It was a big collision of sorts. He didn't go down. He stumbled around, got up, and ran the wrong way out of confusion at that point. Sixty-some yards, his quarterback ran him down on the three-yard line, and uh, he eventually uh, was tackled on the one-yard line. If he would have went into the end zone, it would have been a safety. It had been two points for the Georgia Tech team. As it turned out, Cal decided to punt early uh, and not risk getting pushed back in the end zone for a safety, and sure enough, they blocked the punt, got the safety anyway. Eventually, uh, Tech won the game 8-7 to seven by virtue of that two points. I don't know if you can identify with this young man, Roy Regals, who had to live for the rest of his life with the nickname Wrong Way. Hung on him. You can't say Roy Regals without saying Roy Wrong Way Regals. After that play happened, he was determined he wasn't going back out on the field. His coach tried to talk him into it. But Roy said, Coach, I, I can't do it. I've ruined you. I've ruined myself. I've ruined the University of California. And I couldn't face that crowd to save my life. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I think that maybe if we would reflect on it, that uh, probably most of us have. We failed someone. We have let someone down. We've embarrassed ourselves in some way. And we just want to crawl into a hole somewhere and not come out. Well, then I believe this is the way Jonah felt after about three days in that fish. Only he didn't have to worry about crawling in a hole because he's already in one. <laughs> it was worse than a hole. A hole in the bottom of the sea, so to speak, is the old saying go, the old song. What must have it what what must have it felt like if we could 
maybe put ourselves into Jonah's shoes for a moment. He would have been extremely cold, teetering on hyperthermia, wet, shivering, almost drowned before he was swallowed by the fish, perhaps water in his lungs, coughing, gagging, probably in and out of consciousness, immobilized. And that's just the physical part. He was utterly alone. In his mind, completely rejected even by God. It was pitch dark. I've never been seasick, never had the pleasure. But I can imagine... If any, if any of you know what being seasick was like, I think Jonah probably was about the worst. And then you have all that was going on inside that fish. Digestive acids possibly. The onrush of seawater and back out. The, the absence of air at times and maybe a gulp of air here and there. I I can't even begin to imagine what it was like. Now, what would you be doing if you were there like that, experiencing everything that Jonah experienced? Well, I think you would have been doing the same thing Jonah was doing, a lot of praying. read a story this week about fire department went into, or I guess a kindergarten class went into the fire department to see the fire engines. You know how they do that every now and then. And the fireman began to talk to the kindergartners, and he said, you know, uh, what do you do if there's a fire in your house? And they all just you know, looked at him, and he said, well, you, you go up and you, you touch a doorknob and see if it's hot. And if it's hot, you drop down on your knees. He said, you know why you do that? And one of the kindergartners spoke up and said, yeah, you pray to God to help you out of this mess. Well, that's, that's where Jonah was, and that's where we would be, I'm pretty sure, if we had any conscious thought at all. Urgently, fervently praying for deliverance. Well, yes, that is what Jonah was doing. But there's something else that we read in chapter 2 that you may not expect. Jonah was praising God and giving him thanks. That's not quite a reflex action. The first six, seven verses of chapter 2, that's what Jonah's doing as he prays. Now look, Jonah obviously wrote this down afterwards, but yet everything that he describes in chapter 2, he experienced when he was inside that fish. We know he wrote it afterwards because some of it has some past tense in it, obviously. And by the way, he probably didn't have a scroll and a, uh, whatever they used for a pen back in those days. (laughs) 
He couldn't have wrote it while he was in there, but... Chapter 2 is amazing Hebrew poetry. Jonah was extremely educated. Highly intelligent person. How could he possibly be thanking God and praising God in this circumstance? I think it's because, and we'll see this as we look at it in a moment, when they tossed him into the sea, <clears throat> he was basically drowning. I mean, that was the only thing that could possibly happen to him. He's going to drown. Until that fish gulped him down. And as I mentioned last week, that fish not only was an instrument of God's affliction and an instrument of God's chastening and correction in his life, but it was also, that fish was also an instrument of God's grace. Because if the fish hadn't swallowed him, he would have drowned. As Jonah contemplated it, there was hope. May have been slim. I think we go through that sometimes when difficulties arise. I kind of got some hope, but then I don't know if if there's any hope at all. Maybe there's a little, you know, I don't know. Jonah at least still had hope. He was still alive and he realized he should have been dead. But God used a fish to spare him. I suppose Jonah wondered, well, for how long is God going to spare me? Maybe God just spared me for the sea, but maybe God wants me to be digested by a fish. Well, maybe not. Why would he spare me from the sea? And so Jonah was in a struggle in his own mind and heart, no doubt, in this situation. And yet he's able to praise God and come to repentance and find complete Salvation on the physical plane when the fish spits him out, down in verse 10. How was Jonah able to do that? I want to ask you this question. What what were his resources? What were his spiritual resources that enabled him even in such dire circumstances, to have such a perspective. Here he is. He's inside. That's a to scale drawing here of what, as we suggested, was the possibility the fish could have been the whale shark. As I showed you last week, they have some in the aquarium down in Atlanta. You see, Jonah drew upon the resources that God had given him and that he had learned to depend on in previous days. That's how he could praise God. That's how he could get through this terrible circumstance. So, God has provided us some resources. What are they? What are the resources we need in times of distress? And and I... I want to emphasize this morning, the same resources Jonah drew on 
we can draw on. We may have never been in a fish. We may have never been near death. Some of us may have been. Probably more of us than realize if it weren't for the grace of God. We're near death. Some point in time, some accident, some circumstance, some illness. What are the resources we can draw on in times of distress? Well, number one is the power of God. I mean, hope begins with understanding that God is all-powerful. The theological word is omnipotent. There's no limits on what he can do. He can do whatever he wants. The only limits is on involves his own choice. Notice how the affliction, verse 17, the great fish that God had prepared, swallowed up Jonah. His affliction led to his prayer, chapter 2, verse 1, then Jonah prayed. Yeah, yeah, he sure did. I don't know about you. You ever been in situations where you say, God help me! <laughs> You don't have time for dear Heavenly Father, Creator of Heaven and Earth. It's just like, help! I think that's that's where you begin. And Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. Well, the very word God. That he prayed to God. Not some heathen idol. Oh no, all the sailors had been praying on that boat to their, their idols. Oh, they represented many. But there was no idol that could do anything, no false god that could save him or anybody else but God. You see, it's always but God that brings hope. And why bother praying if God can't handle the situation? Yeah, God can handle any situation. And so affliction drives us to God, and and God has the answer for every situation. And Jonah prayed unto the Lord, his God, out of the fish's belly, and said, and here's his recorded prayer beginning, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of Sheol, cried I, and thou heardest my voice. I think if you're looking at the old King James translation, it may say out of the belly of hell. It's a Hebrew word, sheol, which mentally was just a general word for the, their term for the place that the dead go, wherever. And what, it, what, what uh, Jonah is expressing here is, was, he's as good as dead. He already considered himself dead when they flew him in the sea. He thought he was dying when he was drowning, but now the fish, and he's not 100% certain. He's, he's got a little light, maybe a little hope, but he doesn't know if he's going to survive entirely. So out of this, out of this state that is similar to the state of the dead, I cry, says Jonah. By the way, Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. The Lord Jesus Christ said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite term, 
in identifying himself because he was a human being. He was God. He did not cease to be God when he became a man, but he simply took on human flesh. He is the God-man. He is our only hope, the only possible Savior for mankind, a man who took our place, perfect in all of his ways, without sin. God, at the same time, able to defeat death, rise from the dead. And so we have hope, assurance, really, of eternal life. And Jesus believed the book of Jonah. He believed the story of Jonah and the fish. All the, all the, all the so-called wise, smart people who are unbelievers will tell you it's nonsense. But the creator of heaven and earth said, no, it's not nonsense. And, and Jonah made a big mistake when he fled from God. And God had to find Jonah. And so, so God sent the storm. And then God sent the captain down in the bottom of the boat to find him asleep. And then God caused the lot to fall on Jonah when they said, who's causing the, the problem? And then God prepared a fish to swallow Jonah. God knew where he was at every step of the way. He was never outside of the care of God, in spite of the fact that he was outside of the will of God. Now, we as Christians find ourselves in that situation when we stray from God. If we're truly born again, we can walk outside the will of God. We can make wrong decisions. We can go the wrong way. We can sin and we can rebel and and we can backslide, whatever you want to call it. (coughs) But we're not outside of the care of God. We're never outside of the care of God. Because God will find us and he will deal with us and he'll try to correct us and straighten us up and make us what we ought to be. We read from the book of Hebrews last week how God chastens every son whom he loves. Because he loves us enough to correct us. When a daughter or a son disobeys, a good mother, a good father will correct that child (coughs) out of love. That's what God does. It's the situation Jonah is in, and the Lord Jesus Christ and God used that rebellious circumstance, that rebellious prophet, old Jonah, to be a type of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is so powerful, he can take our mistakes and use them. That doesn't mean we're free to make mistakes because he's not going to let us continue down that road. We're never out of his care. But oh, he's a powerful God. And our prayer accesses the power of God in our situation and circumstance every time. Verse 3, for thou hast cast me into the deep, into the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all the billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thine holy temple. Just an expression of the fact that he was going to pray. God appeared, his glory appeared, the temple. 
place of his presence on earth. Verse 5, the waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about, and the weeds were wrapped around my head. (laughs) Seaweeds. The filth of the sea. Everything is that big fish sucked in. That was his bed. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about, and the weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottom of the mountains. The earth, with its bars, was about me forever. In other words, you think, I'm in this circumstance, and I'll never see dry land again. This was the the conclusion as far as anything logical was concerned. With his bars about me forever, yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Powerful enough to forgive. But you see, God doesn't forgive unless there's a basis for forgiveness. And the power of God was demonstrated on the cross of Calvary when Jesus Christ shed his blood for you and me. Only a powerful God can be a saving God and yet not sacrifice his own character in the process. And so those poetic expressions that Jonah wrote later about his experience and what was going on Tell us what he was doing, what was going through his mind, what he was thinking on as he praised God in spite of all that had happened to him. As he finally, finally, as he comes to a point of repentance in it all and realizes that God can actually take him from a state of corruption and restore him. So the power of God is a resource, our primary resource our foundational resource. And then there is the Word of God. The Word of God. Now here's what I want you to notice. Remember when I told you in chapter 1, when he fled from the presence of God, that Jonah knew full well that he can't run away from God because God's everywhere. He's not only all-powerful, omnipotent, he's also everywhere present. He is omnipresent. (coughs) Jonah full well knew that. He was just simply trying to complicate matters to the point that God would say, well, I'll send somebody else to Nineveh. Jonah's too much of a hard case to continue to work with. (coughs) Not so. Wasn't hard for God to deal with Jonah. Jonah just thought it might be. Now, when I made that statement, Jonah knew full well that he could not escape God, that God was omnipresent. How did I know that? Well, Jonah's point in history, about 800 years before the birth of Christ or so, 
was after David wrote the Psalms. And David makes it clear in the Psalms that God's omnipresent. Jonah knew that. Now, how do we know that Jonah knew the Psalms? Well, I'm going to show you just right now. Because most of what he said in those first seven verses, the words and the images are drawn straight from the Psalms. So let's look at, and here's what I want you to do. Let's look at them. I want you to look at your text of Jonah chapter 2, and we're going to put the corresponding Psalms on the screen. And I want you to compare what you're reading in a particular verse in Jonah 2 to what the Psalm says. Can we do that together? So let's begin with verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. Now let's put Psalm 120, verse 1. 120, verse 1. I'm sorry, guys. I got these out of order. There we go. We'll come back to those others in a moment. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. Psalm 120, verse 1. See, Jonah 2, 2 echoes Psalm 120, verse 1. Let's go to verse 3. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the sea, and the floods compassed me about, and the billows and thy waves passed over me. Now let's take a look at Psalm 42, verse 7. Deep calls unto deep, at the noise of your waterfalls, all your waves and billows have gone over me, says David. Psalm 42, 7 echoes Jonah 2, 3. Now let's look at Jonah verse 5, chapter 2. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about, and the weeds were wrapped around my head. Let's go to Psalm 69, verse 2. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. Very similar wording. Psalm 69.2, reminiscent. Well, I should say it the other way. Jonah 2.5, reminiscent of Psalm 69.2. Now let's go to verse 7 in our text. When my, fo- when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee into thine holy temple. Now let's look at Psalm 142, verse 3. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then I knew my path. In the way in which I walk, you have secretly set a snare for me. Did I get the wrong verse? It's verse 2, guys. I'm sorry. Psalm 142. Try Psalm 142, verse 2, if you can. I don't know if you guys can quickly do that or not. There we go. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. I don't know. I Forget that one. There's a verse in Psalms, there's a verse in Psalms that says the same thing, but I've obviously got the wrong reference. But here's the point. Jonah was a student of Scripture. Jonah had absorbed the truth into his soul. 
And in his darkest moment, it was there for him as a resource. It's there for us as well. Now let's go back to those first three or four, beginning with Psalm 119, guys. Your word have I hidden in my heart, says David in Psalm 119.11. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now we always look at that and we say, yeah, see, God, uh, that's, that's one of those verses we, we teach kids in Sunday school, children's church. So they ought to memorize the word of God. Our Awana program emphasizes memorizing the Word of God. Good thing to do. I never liked, I, I just never liked memorizing stuff word for word. I can halfway quote a whole lot of verses, probably not get them exact, but I know what they say. That, that's, that's the essence of it. How, how, do you, how do you absorb truth? In a, in a joyful, uh, easy way, besides just sitting down and just memorizing word, word, word. Just read it. Just read it. <clears throat> you know, you can read through the whole Bible in a year by just reading 12 minutes a day. You have 12 minutes a day to give to reading the Bible. In a year, you'll read the whole thing. Unless you're me, I read slow. It'd take me two years. But, you know, for you guys, it'll take a year. 12 minutes a day. <clears throat> the more you expose yourself to truth, whether your personal Bible reading, your faithfulness to church attendance, your participation in a small group, Sunday school class, your conversation with other believers, the more you expose yourself to the truth, the more you consider the truth, the more you reference the truth, the more you live by the truth and understand the truth and apply the truth, the more you're absorbed into the soul, the very fabric of your being. And when the pressure's on and you're in a tight place, the pressure brings out, literally squeezes out of you a great resource that you need to deal with your present problem. We'll just skip those other two guys. We'll go to point three here. We've talked about two resources that Jonah <clears throat> relied on, the power of God and the word of God. But then there's also the mercy of God. When you come to verse 7, he's not, he's not thanking God. He's not praising God. He is recommitting himself to obeying God. It's what we call repentance. The word repentance simply means to change your mind. He, he decided to disobey and run away. Now he's deciding, you know what? If I ever see the, if I ever see the light of day again, I'm heading to Nineveh. <laughs> That's where he's at. When my soul fainted, he says in verse 7, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came in unto thee into thine holy temple. Now verse 8 presents a contrast. 
that they observe lying vanities and for, excuse me, I'll read that again. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Now, he's talking about the sailors back on the boat. Their gods didn't exist. Their gods were carvings, idols. He said, they that put their faith in those things, they have no mercy. They forsake their own mercy. There's nothing there for them. But when I come to you, God, there's forgiveness. Verse 9, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed. What was it he vowed? Well, he doesn't say. I will pay that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Well, I can tell you what he vowed. I don't have to read it. His vow was, Lord, get me out of this fish and I'm heading to Nineveh. I can imagine him, you know, and when the, spe- when the fish spits him out on the shore and he's lying there and he's weak. I mean, he's been probably on the verge of hypothermia. He hasn't eaten for three days. He's probably dehydrated of all things. He doesn't have any fresh water. When I don't drink enough, I get a little dehydrated. I was, I'm just a klutz. I don't know what's my age or what. And uh, after I drop a thing or two, my wife will say, you've been drinking your water? Because she knows that. By the way, guys, I figured out why I can't play but about nine out of 18 holes on my golf course. I'm not drinking enough water. By the time I get the back nine, I'm, I'm done for, you know. I'm, I can't even hit the golf ball straight. That's a good excuse as I've ever heard. Right? <laughs> and... Jonah's barely got enough strength to lift himself up. And some guy comes plodding along the fish and he says, Ben, you need some help. Here, here, have a drink of water. And Jonah looks up and says, which way to Nineveh? <laughs> That's the only thing on his mind. Why? Look at verse 8. They that observe lying vanities forsake their mercy. That word mercy is a Hebrew word which means the unfailing faithfulness of God to His promises, to His character involving us. The heathen don't have any mercy. They don't have a God. They don't have any faithfulness. What they believe is just fantasy land. It's unfounded hope. But, De- but Jonah knew we had. He, he, he knew that he had a God of true mercy. Sometimes we forget Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. Jesus has just made those statements, verse 15 and following, about if Someone has something against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That, and, and he gets through that. And, oh, Peter, you know, you know how Peter is. He's always seeming to say the wrong thing. And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? <laughs> now, now, Peter was being really generous because all the rabbis in those days said three times. That's it. If your brother offends you once, forgive him. If he forgives you... 
If he offends you twice, forgive him. If he offends you three times, forgive him. But that's it. If he offends you after that, you don't have to forgive him. He's had three chances, three strikes, you're out. So Peter said, well, Lord, you're telling us to forgive. How many times? Now, now Peter knows the rabbis say three times. So Peter, you know, he's wanting to look, you know, you know we, we all want to like to make ourselves look good, don't we? Up to seven times? What do you think, Lord? You know what Jesus said? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 490 times. Now, I can't even think of anybody that's offended me 490 times in my whole life. <laughs> I might have offended that many people, but I can't, I can't think of it. Uh, anybody's offended me that many times. Jesus wasn't really, he was just saying to Peter, don't put a, don't put a number on it. Here, here's a ridiculous high figure to show that, show you, Peter, that, you know, your generosity, your willingness to forgive is not enough yet. But God is a God who will forgive and forgive and forgive and keep on forgiving if we will confess our sin. He is faithful and just. He's, he's perfectly righteous in doing so. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not some of it. Not all of it. Not part of the time. Every time. Roy Regals had told his coach, Coach, I can't do it. I've ruined you. I've ruined myself. I've ruined the University of California. I couldn't face that crowd to save my life. To which Coach Price responded, Roy, get up and go back out there. The game's only half over. (laughs) And he did. He got up, he went back out there, he played a second half, and he played a great second half, blocked a punt, did everything in his power. They still lost, but if his coach hadn't have said that to him that day, if he hadn't have made that decision that day, he wouldn't have been able to live with his mistake the rest of his life. He describes how at first it, it, it would make him mad when people would call him wrong way and and hear people in a conversation say something about going the wrong way and assume they were talking about him and and all the rest and but eventually how he came to learn to just laugh about it if you've ever failed god if you've ever failed yourself you ever disappointed anybody you can feel like staying in that hole But the game's not over. God's not through with you. Jonah realized it. Some of us may need to realize it. We have a merciful God. An exceedingly merciful God. 